0: Let's pray. Grant us courage to live faithfully, even in uncertain times, that others might witness your power and grace and come to know and trust in you. And hold me up, God, that I might lift you up. Amen. God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. OK, I want to do this with a little bit more energy. Ready? <laughs> Here we go. God is good.) Awesome. All the time. much better thank you thank you thank you that is so much fun i love doing that the call and response claiming our faith in this god that we believe and trust is good or do we i mean do we really mean what we say when we call out like that to one another do we really trust that god is good all the time I mean, even when the heat's turned up, even when the circumstances of life are stoking the flames and they're getting hotter and hotter, do we really believe that? It's week six of our worship series, Not Your Mama's Bible Stories, and today we're going to take a second look at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's one of those stories that we heard in Sunday school as children, most likely, but haven't had much of an opportunity to study as adults. Now, the basic children's version of the story leads to the message, as you just heard Doogee so masterfully tell, that we can trust in God no matter what to protect us, which is a powerful message, but it is not the whole story. As we look at the story in its fuller context, we discover that there is a depth to the story that goes beyond that basic conclusion, a depth that we don't fully explore as children, but which I at least find completely compelling in terms of the story's ability to transform my heart so that I might actually grow more committed to and more courageous in my faith. Y'all, I can trust God with a lot of things, but when it comes to my children, sometimes it's a challenge. I mean, when they're at school during the day and I suddenly learn that they are sheltering in place because there's a tornado warning, or when I hear that they've gone into lockdown because shots were heard outside their school, I get a little panicked. I find it hard to pray. Sometimes I can't even quite find the words because while on the one hand I'm begging that God will just keep my children safe, there's this other part reminding me that bad things happen, things that I have no control over. So ultimately I try to hand them over to God, trust in God, mostly because there's nothing else I can think to do in that particular moment but I am very attached to the outcome. I mean, I have a crystal clear and fairly rigid vision of what a good God's provision and protection is gonna look like in this particular situation. Faith is never easy, but faith while fully acknowledging that tragedy happens and sometimes even to me and my family, especially in the middle of hard times or scary times, It takes my breath away, makes me wonder, do I really believe that God is good all the time? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they seem to. Here's what doesn't come out in the children's version of the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they tell King Nebuchadnezzar that their God absolutely can rescue them from his fire and anything else that he may try to cook up. But what we don't hear in the children's story is that they go on to say, but even if God doesn't rescue us, we will not bow down to your gods. We will not serve this golden statue. Makes my heart skip a beat. Because if my child were in the line of fire and I thought that gold statue could save them, I'm not sure what I'd do. So today I need for y'all to stay with me, okay? Because there's a lot to unpack in order to get to the bottom line of today's sermon. And I think it's important in terms of our faith. So there are three things that I want you to know about the book of Daniel that have deepened my conviction that we are not placed on this earth purely for the sake of being comfortable or being rich or safe or even necessarily healthy. If we are truly living faithfully into Christ's call, we're risking ourselves. Faith is risky. Fidelity to God is risky, which often means that we have to resist our natural human instincts and desires. So here's the three things that I want you to learn about the book of Daniel. First of all, there are two distinct literary styles that tell the story of Daniel, that help communicate the book's intent and theological meaning. Second of all, I want to tell you about the setting of the story that we hear told in the book of Daniel. And third, I want you to understand the social, political, and historical context in which this book was written, which is different from the setting in which the story unfolds. Ready? All right, here we go. First of all, the book of Daniel in the first six chapters uses a narrative uh, folktale style to tell the story of a conquered people that are living in a foreign land under foreign rule. The remainder of the book of Daniel uses a mysterious apocalyptic style of writing. Now I know that popular culture Um, thinks that apocalyptic writing is all about delivering doomsday prophecies, but apocalypse, which comes from, from the Greek, doesn't actually translate as the end times, as we often think it does. It actually translates as revelation, which is why we have the book of Revelation. It is revealing God through this apocalyptic writing. Apocalyptic writing does use very powerful and sometimes disturbing imagery and metaphor that are often presented as dreams or visions, and these visions are meant to reveal a little bit of God's plan and to also reveal God's sovereignty and power to carry out that plan. Apocalyptic writing is actually meant to pull back the curtain between heaven and earth so that we can get just a little peek at what's going on. It's used to communicate a message of hope to people who are facing uncertain or scary times. And ultimately, what we discover behind the veil is that regardless of what our current reality looks like, God fights a mighty cosmic battle behind the scenes against all the evil forces that are trying to defeat us and this world. And God absolutely means to win that fight. So despite appearances, our suffering, and our sorrow, and even death, they are not the final word. That's the message and the hope of apocalyptic writing. So second, the setting of the story that we hear in Daniel. The story of Daniel is set during the Babylonian exile following the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BCE. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That's how the book begins. So after ransacking the city and destroying the temple, Nebuchadnezzar, he took many of the ritual vessels and furnishings from the temple for his own, and he took them back to Babylon with him. Now, by destroying their temple and confiscating all of these ritual artifacts, the king is demonstrating to the Israelites that he has defeated and now has power over their God and consequently has power over their God's people, who he also takes back with him to Babylon. And in Babylon, from among the most socially elite Israelites, he chose those who were most intelligent, who were most educated, most talented, most attractive. And he invited them to court to be educated in the language and literature of the Chaldeans, who were the people who ruled Babylon at that time. They were an ancient people renowned as astronomers and astrologers, and King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to educate these elite Israelites in these arts so that they could come and serve him in his court. Now, Daniel and his three friends were four of those that were chosen for this honor. And Daniel's three friends, their names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But because all four of them had names that within them contained some reference to Israel's God, Nebuchadnezzar gave them all brand new names, too. Names that now reflected the names of the Babylonian gods, which was another way, another means of controlling them. Daniel became Belteshazzar, and his friends became Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because they were faithful to God, the story says, these four were equipped by God and strengthened by God so that they would grow in wisdom and knowledge and skill in these arts that Nebuchadnezzar was training them in they got so good at these arts that the king esteemed them as 10 times better than all the other magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. So one night, King Nebuchadnezzar has this very disturbing dream, wakes him up in the middle of the night, scares him half to death. So he immediately calls on all the Chaldeans and magicians and enchanters to interpret his dream. Only, he doesn't tell them what the dream is. He says, y'all are magicians and enchanters. You should know what I dreamed. And if you don't, and if you can't interpret it, then you're all going to be executed. Oddly enough, none of them could figure out what he had dreamed, nor could they interpret this dream that they couldn't figure out. And so, despite the king's perfectly reasonable request... They failed miserably, and he was going to execute them all, even the Israelites who had trained in astrology and astronomy, which meant that the king's men went out hunting for Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, when, the, when they show up, Daniel stalls. He says, wait a minute. Just give me a day or two. Let me reflect on all of this. I'm sure that it'll come to me, and I'll be able to tell you what you dreamed. I'll be able to tell you what it means. Just give me a little bit of time. He does. God reveals the dream to Daniel, and he knows exactly how to respond to King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is so overwhelmed and so impressed that he actually falls down on his face and begins to worship Daniel. And he promotes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So all of this sets up the story that we heard today of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to worship this enormous gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had erected in the Dura Plain. Are y'all still with me? All right, good. Number three, the context in which the book of Daniel was written. So while the setting of the story of Daniel begins around 587 BCE, the story was likely written between 167 and 164 BCE. And y'all, it is such a relief to actually have a narrow and fairly certain date of the composition of this particular book. That almost never happens in biblical scholarship. But the reason that, that scholars are fairly certain of these particular dates is because of Um, events that were happening in history that can be confirmed by sources outside of scripture. So during the period between the Babylonian exile, which is when the story of Daniel unfolds, and 167 BCE, the Israelites had actually been liberated from Babylon. They had returned to Jerusalem. They had rebuilt Jerusalem and the temple, but... By the time the book of Daniel was written, another foreign ruler had occupied Jerusalem. At the time of its writing, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who was a Hellenistic Greek king of the Seleucid Empire, had, had, uh, he now had power over Jerusalem. He had taken the name Antiochus after he ascended the throne, and then he added the title Epiphanes, which means Manifest God. He was the first of the Seleucid kings who began to place phrases on the backs of coins that claimed his own divinity. So like Nebuchadnezzar, Antiochus sought to rule the people by claiming divine power. And he went to extremes that none who had come before him ever went to. One of his major aims was to bring unity by spreading the Hellenist movement throughout his dominions, which brought him into violent conflict with the powerful Jewish element there, who absolutely insisted that they were only going to worship their God. Every other nation that had conquered Israel up to that point had issued decrees protecting the rights of Jewish people to remain faithful to and practice their own religion, until Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who insisted that everyone in his kingdom, everyone, had to be one in law, custom, and religion. When the Jews resisted the edict, compelling them to abandon their own religious practices in favor of the Greek, Antiochus established regulations, making things like Sabbath practice, circumcision, possessing a book of the law, or um, practicing food laws, made all those things illegal and punishable by death. Sound familiar? So, Antiochus sent Apollonius to Jerusalem, where he entered on the Sabbath, totally setting up the Jewish people to be caught red-handed, and killed most of the males, and enslaved all of the women and children. And then finally, after all that, he erected an altar of Zeus over the altar of burnt offering in the Jewish temple and compelled the Jews to take part in the heathen festivities. Now based on outside sources, this event is recorded to have occurred in 167 BCE, which is how we know that the book was written after that particular date. And we also know that the book was written before 164 BCE, because we know that that's when Antiochus died. And the accounts in the book of Daniel of Antiochus' death and the end of his reign, they're not accurate. So what's the point of all this? What does it mean? Why do we care? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they faced a very difficult decision. A life and death decision. Would they be faithful to God even at the expense of self, with eyes wide open, perfectly aware that while God absolutely could save them from Nebuchadnezzar's fire, God might not. The Jews faced a very difficult decision. They faced a life and death decision. Would they be faithful to God, even at the expense of self, even with the full realization that God may not, and in their case didn't, save them from Antiochus IV. We, we're faced with very difficult decisions. As we lead a life of faith, we're challenged by many decisions in life i mean will we be faithful to god even at the expense of self even knowing that while god most definitely can save us from suffering sometimes god doesn't we live in a world that is surra- and we're surrounded by idols people institutions agendas even products and services. All claiming divine power. All promising to save us. We confront false gods every single day. Will we bow down to power? Or not? Even if God doesn't save us? Will we bow to the gods of social status, or popularity, even if God doesn't save us? Will we bow to those who want us to think that they are gods, even if God doesn't save us? Will we bow down to idols that promise us safety and security, or pleasure, or immediate gratification, Even if God doesn't save us, will we bow down to the gods of money? Even if God doesn't save us. Richard Rohr is a Franciscan friar and spiritual writer, and in one of his recent daily devotionals, he said, Once there was a man who built an altar and he placed a dollar bill on it and then he knelt down in front of it and began to worship. Well, when people questioned him about it, he looked at him and said, well, at least I'm not a hypocrite. With Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and with the Jews who resisted Antiochus IV Epiphanes, we can know that behind the veil... Despite all appearances to the contrary, there is a cosmic battle being fought by God on our behalf. And God absolutely means to win it. And our faithfulness in the meantime matters. Faith in the face of adversity, faith at the expense of self and all we hold dear, it's an incredible witness. Nebuchadnezzar, because of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's very faithful witness, he was transformed. Not only did he become a believer, but he became a defender of their faith. Threatening any who would speak ill against the Israelite God. God is good. All the time. God is good. Let us pray. Loving and gracious God, you are good. And you've given us many good things. You give us strength and courage and perseverance. Even in times of trouble. God, we pray that you would remind us that even when we are walking through a fire where the flames are stoked seven times their normal heat, that we are not alone. You're right there with us. You step into the fire with us and walk alongside. Help us to gain comfort and strength from your presence always. God, as we give you thanks for all of the many gifts that you've given us, and as we offer back to you out of that abundance, we ask that you give us courage to be generous, and we ask that you bless what we offer, that it may be used with wisdom to reach all the people in our area who have yet to meet you, that they might come to know you, And have faith. We ask this in your son Jesus name. Amen.